Well, welcome to episode 104 of uh, The Professor and the Hack. I'm the hack, Hugh Rimmington. Uh, joining me in lockdown, uh, although in separate lockdown, I should uh, I should assert, is uh, the professor, of course, Peter Van Onselen. How are you, Pete? Good, Hugh. I mean, we'd be technically allowed if we were singles to catch up in lockdown because there's a singles bubble now, isn't there? Uh, so you're allowed to provide each other with company in lockdown, but neither of us is in that situation, fortunately. Obviously. I'm, I'm not sure if that's a company that was being uh, proposed uh, by that arrangement, <laughs> but um, it's nice that you think of me that way, Peter. Let me just say. But, uh, I don't Why don't we get no, right I, into it, Hugh? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I'm probably, I'm supposed to be, a, well, I am a journalist, I suppose, but I'm supposed to be across every darn thing that moves, all the, all the changes that happen. And it's so bewildering. I gave up a couple of weeks ago. I don't know exactly what the rules are on any given moment, five kilometers. My daughter had a, a baby uh, last month. She is 5.2 kilometers. Thank you so much. She's 5.2 kilometers away from where I am. And I haven't looked to see, I think I'm not allowed to go see her, but I think we're allowed to meet now in a park that is of mutual distance so i can see her and my first grandchild um but how would i find as, lo- as long as you, which i'm sure you, which i'm sure you have been as long as you're both fully vaxxed is that right for the park meetings the, the picnic is that what we're talking about i think that's just yes. to come in if it hasn't already yeah yes i mean I, i'm all i'm saying by this is that i have great sympathy for people in lockdown particularly when it was going through those frenzied changes that seemed to come every day, where you reach, uh, I believe in psychological terms, they call it a state of learned helplessness. It's impossible Mm. to try to keep up. So you give up trying to keep up with what the rules are. And what you do is you apply what rules seem sensible to you, which should properly be uh, only going out when you absolutely have to, wearing masks when you go out, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And... um, and yet here we are, we're, we're, we're finding our own way through all of this. And the Burnett Institute says in, in modeling that's just been released that all of this, no matter how nonsensical it has somehow seemed, has saved something in the order of 5,800 lives and saved 590,000 people from getting COVID. So uh, painful as it has been, it has saved thousands of lives, and that, I suppose, is something worth focusing on. Well, and, and assuming that that modelling is even remotely accurate, it's still significant, isn't it? You know, it doesn't have to be exactly accurate. It can be 25% of the way towards accurate, and it's still significant. Uh, and I, I guess what that speaks to is what we all know, which is that eventually, once fully vaccinated, large chunks, if not close to all of the population, will get COVID at some point in time when restrictions are eased. But the difference is that we will be fully vaccinated uh, and therefore that will significantly reduce uh, death rates. Of course, people with comorbidities, particularly very serious ones, this continues to be an issue and and also for for the very old, even if fully vaxxed, it's an issue as well. And that's probably not focused on enough, I think, uh, when it comes to what the post-vaccinated uh, world looks like. But it all speaks to why it was a bloody race in the first place to get vaccinated because, you know, you end up in a situation like we're in now and the only way to minimise uh, infections and therefore minimise deaths is to maximise lockdowns and maximise various aspects of, of how to try to control this 
until the vaccination rate goes up. Uh, had it been higher earlier, we'd be getting out of lockdowns earlier. Notwithstanding, yes, we know uh, that you come and go from lockdown, it would seem, even when your vaccination rates are very high based on the experience in other parts of the world. Yeah, and it's funny because, as you say, that this whole question of a race has been given you sharpness by uh, Daniel Andrews uh, grizzling publicly um, with a series of very tasty sound bites about how for Gladys it's a sprint when we're in an egg and spoon thing. His complaint is, is that Pfizer vaccines have been directed up to Sydney um, and uh, he's most displeased about that. He said he signed up to a national uh, policy to, uh, to vaccinate Australians, not to vaccinate Sydney. Um, is he right? I don't think so. Uh, I just think it's state parochial bullshit personally, because for a start, if he was pulling his weight on hotel quarantine uh, in a way that New South Wales does, then he'd have more of a leg to stand on. So we've already got deep inconsistencies with the treatment of all different parts of how to manage the pandemic from state to state. So this idea that everybody just gets a per capita share of vaccinations and that's the end of the discussion is already fraught with inaccuracy based on the fact that it hasn't been a per capita share of things like returning Australians from overseas where different states choose to say yay or nay to what they will or won't accept. But that's in a sense a red herring. The main reason I think it's BS uh, is because you send the vaccines where the outbreak is at its worst uh, and it was at its worst in Sydney. So that's where the vaccines went. Yes, Melbourne is now fast catching up. So I suppose as a consequence, it has to also now start to receive more of a focus, not at the expense of Sydney because of the outbreak in Sydney, but I would argue at the expense of states that are lucky enough to be COVID free. And if that changes, then guess what? You rush the vaccines into those states at an ample rate as well. But hopefully that doesn't have to happen because hopefully vaccination rates nationally are high enough by the time other states start to get infected with COVID as their borders lift, and then we all move on. But this notion that I'm a Victorian or I'm a New South Welshman or I'm a Queenslander or a West Australian and therefore I have to get my fair share, uh, that's a Luddag's argument, if you ask me. What does it mean for WA, though, which has uh, been firmest on its closed border policy and uh, has a... Um, a slow uptake of vaccinations, which in part is the supply, but also partly because people think they're in a pretty good space over there and they're not rushing uh, as people are in, in, in Sydney in particular in parts of New South Wales. Now they're rushing to try to get the vaccine in. They want it because they don't want to get sick. Um, are we going to be left with a situation where when the pressure to open up just becomes irresistible, that uh, WA at that point is more vulnerable than it otherwise needed to be? Potentially, but I suspect what will happen is as long as there isn't a breach of the borders uh, for WA such that they can stay largely, if not entirely COVID free, I suspect that we're waiting till well after Christmas anyway, based on the words of McGowan, over 90% he wants to be vaccinated. I'm not even sure if that means over 16 or if he wants to reduce it to over 12s. It's a very hard figure to get to and they're one of the stragglers as you mentioned, in terms of their vaccination rates so far. So we're looking well beyond Christmas. And I, I believe I heard McGowan say that even once you get there, you then plan ahead by a couple of months as to the point at which you say we're going to open up. So that really pushes it well past Christmas in all likelihood, if ever, depending on whether WA has the kind of interest in getting to 90% plus, given how happy they are to stay locked down. The issue, though, becomes if there's a breach between now and then. You know, does hosting the AFL Grand Final pose dangers that cause a breach? Does it just happen anyway? I think if that happens and WA are struggling 
as stragglers when it comes to getting their vaccination rates up, that's when they've got a problem. And, and that's when I would certainly be advocating to try to haul ass and send as many vaccinations across to WA and get a campaign moving to get them more increasingly fully vaxxed quickly, uh, even though you'd be sort of chasing uh, the wave at that point because you're already a little bit too late. Uh, but, you know, the hope would be from WA's perspective that they can stick to that without breaches. Uh, they're happy being locked down and then eventually they'll open up when it suits them as opposed to when they're forced to. It becomes more of a political issue maybe if the rest of the country is starting to be able to enjoy international travel and the evidence comes in, if it does come in, that you can live with COVID relatively easily with ICU capacity and death rates and all the rest of it, things that some people still aren't certain is true. If that all does happen, then I can imagine things starting to shift a little bit over in WA, but you know, my wife is from there. My kids were born there. I've lived there for a substantial part of my life. I can tell you people that I talk to friends and family that are still over there, they are in no rush open up because they're just enjoying their freedoms and they see the rest of us in lockdown. Uh, it will take some time, I think, for that to change, even in a sort of living with COVID world. Yeah, Delta will get them in the way that it got New Zealand in the end. You know, Presumably, it seems yeah. impossible to stop it happening. And I guess the other thing is, um, you know, we are moving now. We're over 70% first vaccination of uh, over 16s in, in New South Wales. Um, we're moving now towards that point where we're going to start to meet those 70% um, double vaccinated. Uh, and... and restrictions are going to start to ease up that that will happen also more so when it gets to 80 percent and when that happens the modeling suggests that it's inevitable that there's going to be an increase in case numbers certainly and there is modeling that suggests that we're still some way off our peaks for COVID deaths so this is going to be the moment at which the strain goes on and if we remember back to the beginning I think for many of us uh, when we saw this develop, we sort of come out of Wuhan in China, the, the big lockdowns there. But the thing that really brought it home, I think, to many people was um, the terrible outbreak in northern Italy, uh, which was a sort of a Western uh, nation comparable in its medical systems and its political systems to, to our own. And we were seeing the complete incapacity of hospitals to cope with these dreadful scenes and it seemed like a medieval plague had descended almost you know almost at the level of bring out your dead bodies in the streets type of setup and and part of the lockdowns and their initial uh planning it was to save lives, of course, but also to try to stop our medical system, our hospital systems from utterly breaking down under the strain. Now, Gladys Berejiklian is, has been um, confident in her public statements that everything can be coped and it's tickety-boo in our hospital systems. People within the hospitals are starting increasingly to say, look, the hospitals were flat out busy before the pandemic came along. And uh, this rising death toll, this extra strains on ICU surge capacity, the fact that staff are burnt out, the fact that in Melbourne, apparently a lot of the expert nurses who were part of the, the big wave last year have not returned to those jobs. They've seen it. They've lived it. They don't want more of it. Um, you know, these are some of the strains and pressures when we all look at the, you know, the sunny days ahead that I think we're going to have to realize what living with COVID might look like. 
and it's worth mentioning that's actually also one of the fear factors in WA. Their health system, their hospital system, isn't as good as that in a lot of other states. It, it is under more strain, um, just naturally, even without COVID, comparing it to other states. So with COVID, uh, particularly in remote areas, but also in Perth, that's that's a particular issue for them that they're worried about, which understandably would be another factor in why they would want to stay locked down or locked out from other states as long as possible to try to prevent Delta creeping in as long as they possibly can. But the point that you're making about hospital capacity in places like New South Wales and Victoria, when, um, you know, when we open up and whether it can cope with it or not, let's be clear about this. You know, we are more than 18 months into this pandemic now, uh, and we are trailing the world in a good way when it comes to being able to use them as the experiment for what succeeds and fails and then emulate the good and get rid of the bad. Now, there is absolutely no excuse for our hospital systems not being ready for the moment of opening up and COVID running through things with all the modelling. There's no excuse. I mean, literally in China, might not be a democracy, you can build a frigging city in 18 months from, you know, literally just a field to a city. There is absolutely no excuse for not having hospitals ready to roll. Yes, but can I, uh, uh, the difficulty with this is not infrastructure. And yes, the Chinese famously built a, you know, a vast hospital, you know, within a matter of days, but it's, it's not the physical infrastructure. It's a human infrastructure. It takes but that can more be- than 18 months to train a nurse. It, it certainly takes more to, to train a respiratory physician. So um, I know that there are people from all other sorts of um, medical specialties being brought brought in, repurposed into the kinds of uh, tasks that are needed for to incentivists, uh, uh, um, not incentivists, intensivists, they call and uh, respiratory physicians, those kinds of people um, are being pressed in, as we saw in Italy right at the beginning, where you, you could see an obstetrician suddenly finding themselves as an ICU specialist. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, it takes, it, it, it's not immediate to have those people. Oh, no. And I, I agree. Don't get me wrong. Like there's 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 two parts to it, isn't there? There's the human capital and 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 the physical, uh, or the infrastructure. Now the infrastructure is the easier one where there is absolutely no excuse because it should be able to just be gotten done with the amount of time that we've got to be ready for it. Repurposed uh, hospitalisation elements as well as additional. There's enough time for that to avoid those scenes, those horrific scenes that you talked about that we all saw in Italy where there wasn't enough time for it on that side. But even on the human capital side, I have to say, yes, it's harder. uh, And yes, you can't train a nurse up from scratch in 18 months. By the way, it's double that that you can. So it's not as though we're talking about a complete disconnect. You can do it in twice that time from untrained to fully trained through a degree. And also fast track degrees, you can do it in exactly that time if you action it instantly, but you still have to have the demand from people wanting to go into the profession. But that also comes back to your point about people fleeing the profession because they've been through how horrific it is. Now, everything is not about money, but I tell you what, they're throwing money at everything else, throw money at improved salary, bonuses, conditions for nurses. The money is not the problem at the moment, particularly for a country like Australia. It certainly shouldn't be. Uh, You do whatever you need to do so that the hospital system is functioning as well as it conceivably can. And as far as I'm concerned, even though it is harder on the human capital side, it is far, far, far from impossible to get at a damn sight better than what we're hearing from inside the system it is. And that is because they are placing limits on what they're prepared to do in the health sector that they did not place 
on what they were prepared to do when it came to things like JobKeeper. They were not prepared to do when it came to things like unprecedented lockdowns. They were willing to be outside the square in their thinking on those sort of things uh, and do things that we never thought possible in a Western democracy or with the constraints of fiscal management. They need to have the same ethos and philosophy with how they manage the exodus from nursing and the disinterest that is existing there amongst people to be involved in the health profession, as well as fast tracking of degrees. You know, we all know that you do a three-year degree and it takes three years, but you could fast track that easily to one year as a more intensive degree. So I actually reject this idea that they have any excuse for not being ready. We're talking two years, by the way, we're 18 months now. It'll be two years at the really pointy end since the start of this pandemic. If they're not ready for our health system to cope with it, then they're frigging hopeless at their jobs and the politicians take all the blame. As far as I'm concerned, it's public policy 101. All right. Well, politicians taking the blame. We'll uh, get onto (laughs) that subject. Just take a quick break. Welcome back. This is episode 104 of The Professor and the Hack. Thanks for staying with us, by the way, um, through 104 episodes. Uh, If you've been there with us from the start and if you've just joined us, welcome. Now, um, uh, Peter, Scott Morrison's Father's Day trip home. Mm. Uh, Scandalous hypocrisy. Uh, One rule for you, one rule for me, or just a perfectly reasonable thing for uh, any father to want to do? I think it can be both. Uh, I I mean, I do think that it's one rule for most of us and a different rule for him. But I'm not enormously critical of that other than recognising that the optics can be a problem. I mean, he's the Prime Minister. I think that the Prime Minister needs to be free to travel around the country. But yes, if his reason for doing it was simply to get home for Father's Day, that's a personal thing. We can all understand it. Dads can well understand it. He'd been away for quite some time. Uh, But Part of it's the cover-up. You know, he denies that it was a cover-up, but clearly posting a photo that was not a photo of him with his daughters on Father's Day onto social media, that was just weird. And the photo selection was even more weird. Uh, you know, doing it in the dead it of came night. came from a funeral. Exactly. I mean, the insane, yeah, well, a memorial, you know, a memorial for, the, for the family that was killed by a drunk driver. Um, yeah. In Western and what? And whilst he, you know, in the in the in the in the note attached to the photo, said that it reminds him every day about, you know, the joy of being a father. I can sort of understand that in the context of what that grieving family have went through by losing their children. But still, it strikes me that he was being too clever by half politically, and it was a bit off, if if you know, to say the least. He denies that it was a cover up, but that to me is the issue. I, I don't have a problem with him. It's just a sense of form, though, isn't there? I mean, it, it, probably this wouldn't have. A- wouldn't have raised an eyebrow anywhere if nothing like this had ever happened before. But the, you know, the lying about being on holiday in Hawaii while the country burned, yeah. you know, the disappearing in Cornwall, um, this sort of stuff and, and his thin skin about it. That's the thing which annoys me. And, and the, and the thing about it is, is that he said, we're all in this together and it's a, it's a vital rallying cry at a time of crisis. And we have to kind of sort of believe it that our politicians are are suffering alongside it. And where I think it triggers people is that everyone wants to be with family members on red letter days, father's days, birthdays, and all the rest of it. But um, by now there is accumulated over the course of this pandemic, millions, I would say, of Australians have missed weddings, um, missed funerals, 
you know, all the stuff you don't have to go through it. Families that are separated right now by border restrictions, where there's a three-year-old child on one side of the border and can't get back to the family on the other, that this is the, uh, the thing that we're all in together is that, and it's been made by the politicians. I was not able to see my mother in the last year of her life because I couldn't fly to New Zealand. We've never held a funeral for my mother. Um, I've not been able to go and see my father, my, my newly widowed father in New Zealand for the same reasons. I wouldn't complain about that because we're all in this together. And there are people having circumstances which are far worse uh, than mine. But uh, it, it frays rapidly when a politician is seen as gaming it. And I, I don't blame him overall, but I do think that he needs to be much more sensitive to what he's asked of others, justifiably, I think, but, but project that he is also willing to be in it because he can't complain if he is marked down by punters uh, if he doesn't do it. If you, look, I mean, the problem for me is is this whole issue of the cover-up and the form with him having done these sorts of things in the past when it comes to trying to sort of do them but get away with them rather than acknowledge them. It's much more that than the idea, even of the we're all in this together principle, because as Prime Minister, he spent as much if not more time away from his family than, than most people, you know, and, and what I mean is the family that he lives with, you know, young children, his wife, you know, he does inordinate amounts of quarantine when going overseas, coming back. He doesn't get exemptions from any of that, nor should he, but he doesn't, right? A lot of world leaders elsewhere probably would get exemptions from that. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on his side about that part of it. I think he has given up a lot. And you know, as much as all the people that get exemptions on a daily basis to do the things that we need, truck drivers crossing borders, uh, social workers and medical workers crossing borders, you know, he's the prime minister. I'm, I'm okay about that. But it's the idea that he won't own it. Okay. That's the one for me. I mean, you've got to sit down and say, right, I want to get home. I've been away for six weeks. I want to be home for Father's Day. I have the ability to get an ACT exemption to get back to do things there afterwards. Don't try to just slip in and slip out and get away with it. Be upfront about it. And if you're not prepared to be upfront about it because you think that the public won't like it or you're worried that those who naturally try to see, you know, the worst in you will bring that out and bring it to bear, then don't do it. If you're not prepared to own it, don't do it. But I have no problem with him doing it and owning it. But as you say, Hugh, you know, he, he never seems to do that. And that, I think, is the downside. Uh, and, and in small part, I understand politicians' re reaction being, well, we always get criticised no matter what. Be that as it may, though, that doesn't become a reason to try to do it and cover up. That becomes a reason to, well, if you're not prepared to own it because of the criticism, you, just, you can't do it. End of discussion. Now, um, JobKeeper remains in discussion. Uh, you, it must be said, always saw a flaw in the glass with JobKeeper. <laughs> and uh, what do you know, it has transpired to be pretty much as you predicted. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I get held to account for my bad predictions uh, when it comes to things like elections and football games, increasingly, it would seem. Uh, my children are convinced uh, that I single-handedly cost Australia gold medals at the Olympics when I told them that they were certainties. Um, but, you know, the, the ones that you don't get as held to account are the ones that you get right. JobKeeper early on, and I have to confess, I plagiarised the views of others that, you know, with my journalistic hat on, I was talking to people out of business and so forth. Uh, they were all saying to me, 
and I think I mentioned it in those terms actually on this podcast, you know, it was people who were running businesses that were eligible for JobKeeper in those early stages who were telling me, this is loosey-goosey. We are eligible, even though we're of the view that we're going to bounce back fast, we would be crazy not to take the JobKeeper payments because we're eligible. Uh, and of course, now, lo and behold, go fast forward, the, the the lack of stringent rules around how it could be done, which would not have curbed the scheme. The government wants you to believe that it would have changed the dynamic of the scheme. Well, there's nothing wrong with having rules in there that if you make inordinate profits subsequently, that as part of those profits, you have to pay back JobKeeper. If that would have prevented some companies from taking JobKeeper, then so be it because they're assuming the best, they shouldn't have taken it in the first place. Most still would have taken it. And the difference is they would now have to pay it back. I'm not sure I entirely agree with Labor that those businesses should be named and shamed though, because as much as those businesses gamed the system, that's a little bit like the Kerry Packer ethos that you know, you're know you an idiot if you pay more income tax than you're required to. It's up to government to get the settings right to get what it believes is the appropriate reaction from business or individuals. And it was the government that got it wrong. They rushed JobKeeper out. And even on that one, Hugh, I could be more forgiving of them for that, given the totemic moment in time that it was, that they didn't have enough safeguards in place, even though others like us talked about these being problems that they could have easily fixed. They've got entire bureaucracies behind them, for heaven's sakes. But I could still be forgiving if they weren't hypocrites absolutely laying into labor for making the same mistake with the design principles of some of their schemes during the global financial crisis. Pink bets and so on. Yep. yep. Yeah. Um, interesting takes from the reserve bank uh, uh, on how we're going to come out of this. Uh, the reserve bank governor saying that uh, the lockdowns in New South Wales in particular, but Victoria also will delay uh, the recovery a little bit, but uh, it, won't derail it that uh, the setback is quote only temporary uh, says the governor so um uh, the suggestion being that we're we are going to come out of this as we open up and it'll all be sweet but i noticed that uh, the chief economist with the commonwealth bank gareth ed has written a piece for the financial review in which he takes a slightly different view a slightly more cautious view and that view is that unlike previous lockdowns where we've come out of it or grim times with the economy, once you take, you know, your foot off its head, just bounces back up again, um, mm. that this might be much more patchy because we're going into a world where the virus will be uh, present, we'll be living with it. And so people's own constraints around their behavior, will they really go to the pubs? Will they really go into the... Um, you know, to restaurants? Uh, will they uh, go back to their CBD offices or will they prefer to work from home? What will that do, for example, to commercial real estate values? Uh, that in fact, it may not be, according to Gareth Ed, uh, quite that snapback that we've seen previously, that uh, in fact, it, we could be in for quite a long time of, um, of higher unemployment and lower growth. Yeah, it's a fascinating one because it, it literally, in, in my mind, could go either way. On the one hand, there's the argument that a little bit like post the 1918-19 pandemic, you hit the roaring 20s and, you know, people come out of the pandemic like they did out of both World War One and the pandemic, obviously, at that point in time, and economies just kick north in a big, big way. 
ultimately <laughs> contributed to the crash of the Great Depression and, and and all that followed, which then, of course, went on to lead to World War II. So, you know, there, there was still a day of reckoning. Careful what but you wish could, for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, it, you know, it could have that sort of kick-on effect. You know, we all the world comes out of lockdown uh, and the world comes out of COVID, even though it still lingers, and off we roll. But I think the more likely scenario is the one that we're talking about, uh, this notion that, uh, COVID in a way that the Spanish flu did not lingers for longer. And that's what normally happens in pandemics. It normally is a, a decade pandemic, not a couple of years. The Spanish flu was the false equivalence that we we really have looked at because it was the nearest to major pandemic, um, but it's not actually one. I mean, that was the 1950s, but that's not as significant. So it was the nearest to pandemic, but you look throughout history hundreds of years back and they usually tend to last a lot longer. So if that is what we live with, with COVID over the coming years for the remainder of this decade, I think it is likely to stifle people's confidence and therefore their spending, as you mentioned. Uh, and it's also, uh, as a result of that, likely to stifle because of the way we do business in a, in a post-COVID or enduring COVID world, it's likely to reduce productivity as well, which has its own profound impact on the economy. So we might be in for some very tough times on that front, but it's just really hard to pick because it could be, it could come in waves, you know, uh, and it could be quite varied region to region and nation to nation. Um, but either way, you know, they, they say that economists have predicted, you know, seven of the last two recessions. Uh, one thing we can be certain about is that economists are as shooting in the dark as we are. Um, but it's still interesting to hear their prognoses, even if they've all got some quite different ones, because we've got some tough times ahead one way or the other, frankly. Mm, the dismal science. Uh, before we go, I should uh, make a plug for uh, the uh, program in the shadow of the towers, which uh, channel mm. 10 is running on six o'clock uh, this Saturday, which of course is the 20th anniversary of September 11, 2001. Those scenes that uh, those who were alive at that time, um, of course, can never quite expunge from their memories. Although we need to bear in mind that uh, uh, I've been working on that special and the editor who's cutting it, brilliant young man, uh, was five years old at the time, has no direct memories of it at all. But um, it's interesting to talk to John Howard as part of that. A couple of standout thoughts. One was uh, three thoughts. One was that he knew within hours Australia would be going to war. He knew straight away mm. it was terrorism. Um, he knew that uh, he would offer whatever support the United States would need. He knew that the terrorism came from offshore and that there would be a uh, a military response. So, you know, it's funny to see it from the politician's point of view, even in those shocking moments, he did his own calculation. Uh, he had that instinct for it. It formed up over the coming days as he uh, formally um, invoked the ANZUS alliance. Second thing was that his first thoughts were for his daughter, sorry, his son and wife, Tim and Jeanette, his wife, because they were on a walking tour while he had mm. work to do. And they were their walking tour was taking them to the Pentagon. And uh, his immediate concern was, my God, uh, I hope they're, uh, you know, they're, they're not there. In fact, they had not quite reached the Pentagon and they were brought into the bunker, which we learn existed uh, behind the, um, uh, beneath the um, Australian embassy there in Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, and uh, I think the other thing about it, which is interesting, is how much at ease and at peace he is with the consequential decisions, not just Afghanistan, which he says saved us from another 9-11, and whether it was in Australia or around the world, going into Afghanistan, he said, met its requirements. Um, and he is at peace with the decisions which 
I would say, said at the time, believed at the time were the wrong decisions to go and invade Iraq. Um, but he's at peace with that. So uh, uh, you, you won't change his mind. He believed that the uh, intelligence uh, seemed sound to him, even though it turned out to be flawed. So there you are. You know, isn't it? You know, I mean, <laughs> I, I would suggest that those are versions of what is both the virtue and the vice of John Howard as prime minister and now post his prime ministership, which is that he is stubborn, you know, and that stubbornness brought about a lot of positives for him, but I think it also brings about some negatives. And I think it's one thing to say you're okay about the Afghanistan invasion. I can see the logic of that, but the Iraq invasion, even if you accept as I do actually, that he genuinely believed there were weapons of mass destruction there based on the intel that he was receiving. Uh, you can't still be comfortable with the decision when you find out you were hoodwinked and there actually weren't, you know, to me that is stubbornness rather than genuine thoughtful reflection. Uh, and as I say, you know, to be fair, that stubbornness is something that has served him well at times as well as badly at others. Can I quickly say something to you before you go? Uh, yes. Just on a, on another point, I just want to put this out there because I think it may well already become an issue before we next get to talk. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce it, um, but there is an important synthetic drug as opposed to a, a steroid style, which is used to treat COVID. It begins with T. I'm not going to mangle the pronunciation of it, but my understanding is there is significant short supply of it in this country. And it's really important as a drug for treating COVID patients who are in ICU particularly treating pregnant women and children. It's useful for other people as well, but particularly for pregnant women and children. The, the, the medi medical reasons behind that I'm not entirely au fait with, but it is apparently in really short supply because it's a difficult drug to make and it's not one that was heavily anticipated. And because it's a synthetic, it's, it's therefore more difficult to make. This is just an interesting thing going forward. Now, presumably they're going to put their you know, shoulders into it to try to get more of it, um, but we don't talk enough about the drugs to treat COVID once you get it. We talk a lot about the vaccinations and the shortages there so that, you know, you can minimise your chances of getting it or minimise the seriousness of COVID once you get it. But drugs like this one are so important if you are unlucky enough to get COVID and particularly if you haven't been vaccinated yet. Shortages in that respect is a real issue. We talked before, obviously, about shortages with human capital as well as with potential infrastructure shortages. This sort of thing is also one to watch because it's, again, something that never should have come to be in my mind because can, can governments should be ready for it. Oh, God, I can. I just have to now find it out, out of my phone. You you talk while I find okay, the so, exact <clears throat> spelling um, of it. <laughs> In the shadow of the towers, Channel Ten, Sunday, six o'clock. Be there and watch it. I've really enjoyed doing it. Actually, we spoke to a uh, a whole range of Australians whose lives were changed that day. Um, you can't have mass murder of three thousand people and have a good outcome, but it's it's fascinating to see how people have have made their own psychological accommodation as best they can with dreadful events. And uh... so definitely tune in for that one. I mean, I'm, I'm keen to do that as well. And the one by the project uh, just the other night was really good as well. I've got the drug for you now. Please uh, do. Well, I know we're about to run out of time. It's T-O-C-I-L-I-Z-U-M-A-B. Good luck with that. Tocilizumab. <laughs> I'm sure that's not how you pronounce it, but we'll know. Thanks for bringing it to our attention. PVO, have a great day. And we day. can post the name of it, by the way, uh, with this podcast, I'm sure, when people link into it. But it's just an interesting one to think about. Hugh, great to chat as always. And you. Take care.
You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.